you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. This is Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. Thechrisvossshow.com. Hey, come here with another great podcast. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. Be sure to put your arm around that friend, neighbor, relative. Tell them to subscribe to The Chris Voss Show and uh, join the wonderful family that loves you but does not judge you. The best kind of family there is. Go to youtube.com forward says Chris Voss. Hit the bell notification button over there. Go to goodreads.com. See everything we're reading or viewing over there as well. Go to all our groups, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, the big LinkedIn uh, group, 122,000 people over there. Our LinkedIn newsletter, that thing is killing it. People love that thing, and it just keeps growing like a monster. So we're excited to announce my new book is coming out. It's called Beacons of Leadership, Inspiring Lessons of Success in Business and Innovation. It's going to be coming out October 5th, 2021. And I'm really excited for you to get a chance to read this book. It's filled with a multitude of my insightful stories, lessons, my life, and experiences in leadership and character. I give you some of the secrets from my CEO entrepreneur toolbox that I use to scale my business success, innovate, and build a multitude of companies. I've been a CEO for, uh, what is it, like uh, 33, 35 years now. We talk about leadership, the importance of leadership, how to become a great leader, and how anyone can become a great leader as well or order the book wherever fine books are sold anyway guys we have an amazing author on the show today his new paperback version of his book that came out in 2019 is out tomorrow may 31st 2022 the cost of chaos the trump administration and the world by peter bergen he's on the show with us today talking about this uh, amazing book of his he is a journalist author documentary producer and vice president for global studies and fellows at new america a professor of practice at arizona state university a fellow at fordham university center on national security and cnn's national security analyst welcome to the show peter how are you chris thanks for having me on Thanks for coming on. We certainly appreciate it. And uh, congratulations on the, on the paperback issuance of your book. You've you've written a lot of different books, actually. How many books have you uh, put? This is my 10th book, if you count the ones I've co-edited with other people. But my seventh uh, real book, when I say real book, non-edited volume. Edited volumes are real books, but they're not quite as personal. This book I updated and I uh, revised. I finished it. It came out in 2019, as you mentioned. So a lot of other things happened. And originally in the hardcover, the title was Trump and his generals, and it really focused mm-hmm. on that relationship because that was so critical the first two years. If you think about H.R. McMaster, think about Jim Mattis, think about John, General Kelly, think about the generals that surrounded, or General Flynn, that surrounded President Trump when he came in, they were all gone by year by the end of year two. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that you can sort of, the Trump presidency changed over time, it became you know, there was this cliche about the grown-ups in the room and they were trying to control Trump. Well, the cliche wasn't entirely wrong. And certainly, you know, I, I think if you look at the first two years, it was a more normal administration in a sense. I try and, I give Trump his due. I think he got some big things, and I think he got a lot of big things wrong. Let's start with the thing, the big things that he got right, in fairness. He built on the Obama plan to defeat ISIS. He And it was very much an Obama plan that he amped up. He, of course, ordered the, the operation in which Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi died, the 
the guy who founded ISIS. So that, that was certainly an achievement. And I, I was surprised that he didn't mention it more in the campaign. Mm-hmm. Operation Warp Speed is very much the Trump administration made a lot of failures with COVID, which I'll get to in a minute. But they, on the Operation Warp Speed, they gave Moderna $2.5 billion. They ordered $2 billion of doses from Pfizer. They didn't give them money directly, but they guaranteed a market for them. And this was a remarkable achievement. Within two months, Moderna had a, a usable R- RMNA vaccine, and these vaccines were 90% effective, even though they wane over time. And finally, I think on China, Trump really got the measure of triumph. And when I say Trump, the Trump administration, Jim Mattis wrote the, you know, oversaw the defense strategy, H.R. Master oversaw the national security strategy. They both came to similar conclusions on China. There's been a lot of wishful thinking about China over the years, which is if they, as they as their economy grows, they're going to liberalize, and it turned out to be precisely the reverse. They became more authoritarian as their economy grew. And I think Trump certainly got the measure of that and, and the, the Trump team. So I think that those are the positive things. I think the negative, the three big negative things I put in three buckets. One is the he's the first president in history to consistently and publicly refuse to accept that he lost the election. And, you know, this doesn't help our politics at all. And there's no other president who's done anything similar. The second area, I think, it, with COVID, I think, and I'm quoting here Dr. Deborah Burks, who was his coronavirus coordinator. She told the Congressional Committee that 30 to 40 percent of the deaths under President Trump could have been saved with different policies. And the that's 400,000. So doing rough math, it's about 130,000 lives. And he could have, he didn't model good behavior. He never, almost never wore a mask. He denigrated mask wearing. But before the vaccine, it may, it's hard to remember, but the only way you could not get the virus in a, in a, in a pretty bad way was social distancing and mask wearing. And he, he didn't federal guidance on masks. He didn't, he denigrated masks. He encouraged social distance getting together long before it was really safe. He famously said, we're going to be together for Easter early in the pandemic and, and, and said a lot of misleading things about the pandemic. And when he had an opportunity to do something publicly, which I think would have been highly significant, when he and Melania were vaccinated in the closing days of his presidency, he could have done that publicly. And given this, the amount of vaccine hesitancy in the United States, I think that would have made a big difference. And then the final basket, I would say, is you know, Trump came into office saying that he was a great deal maker. <laughs> I don't think, you know, I think the deals that he got involved in did not work out well. Beginning with the Afghan deal, the, the Taliban got everything they wanted, and we got we the United States got nothing. And it, of course, it was Joe Biden who went through with the deal, which I think was a big mistake. But here we had the Taliban. The UN issued a report on Friday, in fact, saying that Al Qaeda and the Taliban are very close. They say this is an astonishing statistic of. 41 cabinet officials and senior officials in the Taliban government under UN sanction. There's no government in the world that I can think of where where that's the case. This deal was a terrible deal. We got nothing from it. Taliban got everything they wanted, which is the country. They remained allied to al-Qaeda. They didn't involve the Afghan government in peace negotiations. So that was one bad deal. Another bad deal was the whole North, the love letters that were exchanged between Trump. Twenty-seven love letters and three meetings didn't produce a, a relationship that actually produced results. And in fact, the North Koreans continued with their program, continued testing short-range ballistic missiles, and they're in a better place they were before Trump came, came to office. And the final deal that I think that was pulling out of the Iran deal really was a mistake because, according to Trump's own intelligence agencies, the the the, 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 the Iranians are really sticking to the terms of the deal. Jim Mattis, but his own Secretary of Defense, was asked a very direct question by Senator Angus King in congressional hearings. Do you think this Iran nuclear deal is in the interest of the American people and national security? Mm -hmm. And 
Mattis had a very simple answer. He just said yes. <laughs> he didn't say anything more, because of course, the more he said, the more he'd piss off his boss. But there was a widespread agreement based on you know, intelligence that they were taking the agreement. Trump pulled out after, after John Bolton came into office as the national security advisor. And the Iranians went from enriching 4% uranium, which is the, the agreement and the deal, up to 20%. Now, 90% is what you need for a nuclear weapon. But the point is, they started, and they're closer to a you know, nuclear bomb today. In fact, they may they probably have enough uranium for a nuclear bomb already, according to some reports. I think if you take that all together, um, I characterize this as the most incompetent presidency of <laughs> the modern American era. Because ultimately, you know, what is the president, what's the commander-in-chief got to do? The commander-in-chief, his main job is to make the American people safe and his policies on COVID. Look, when I finished this book, by the way, the, the, when I did the hardcover, in the yeah. government, I said, look, pre the president, Sir Harry Truman, his his reputation has greatly improved over time. You know, he, he took hard decisions, dropping the, the, the atomic bomb. His David McCullough did a big biography, and I think that shifted the, people's views of Truman. So. I asked the question, you know, is it possible, and this is in 2019, is it possible that Trump, he, unlike every American president, he never served in public office and he never served in the, or in the military. Every other president's either been in the military, served in public office or done both. And so he mm -hmm. came in and I just said, I asked the question, is it possible that his reputation will improve over time? Because he, he was getting something, I thought at the time. Mm -hmm. but then, you know, but I think the denialism around the election mm -hmm. is something that no other president has done. And I think, and then, his Trump never does any homework. He never trusts experts, and he always goes with his gut. And that might work in a Manhattan real estate deal, but it does not work when you have a complex crisis. Yeah. It doesn't produce good public policy, and it didn't. He, and I mean, it's, it's not my opinion. It just, I mean, the, the, the people who were serving him in the public health realm, you know, found him very difficult to deal with because he wouldn't accept kind of basic facts around the pandemic. Anyway. Well, in his real estate deals, you don't really need any sick ba basic facts. You just go file bankruptcy when it doesn't work out. Well, yeah, and it's, yeah, that, his approach worked fine for a family real estate company that wasn't that big, and they were even that successful. But he, you know, and the reason I, I think that it's important right now to be having this discussion is not, this is not his, if you look at polling data, in February, 54% of potential Republican voters, according to a poll by CNN, said they would vote for Trump. Governor DeSantis of Florida came in at 21%, and everybody else has also ran at 1%, or Mike Pence is not, he's just not registering. So, you know, I, I think it's as likely as warm weather in Mar-a-Lago Mar this summer that Trump will run. What would, and by the way, that would be a pretty good way of, it would be a lot harder, some of these uh, suits that have been filed against him, it's a lot harder if he's a either a plausible candidate is the candidate who is running for president. And so there would, there would be that advantage. And plus, of course, he wants, he, he's, he, of course he wants to run. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and he has a good chance of winning the nomination and potentially winning the presidency because Biden is polling at 39%, according to the AP. Hmm. And, you know, the, we're going to get new inflation numbers. They're going to be, and inflation is like a tax on, it's a particular tax on low-income, middle-income Americans. And it's also a tax on all Americans because everybody feels the, the effects of inflation, even if relatively well off. But particularly if you're lower-income, middle-income, Biden, you know, could lose the election to Trump pretty easily right now. If it, you know, if it happened tomorrow, uh, it would be an interesting question. Yeah, it definitely would. Your assessments really surprised me because it seems so stable for those four years. <laughs> <laughs> Everything, it's, 
it, it, really, there was stuff going on behind the scenes. So let me touch on a few things. I noticed you guys changed the title, I think, of the book from yeah. the hardcover to the paperback. Was What was the reasoning behind that? The, the hardcover was called Trump and His Generals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the subtitle was The Cost of Chaos. Let me uh, double check. My, my COVID brain is... Uh, yeah. yeah. Trump, so, so, yeah, so the, the hardcover was Trump and His Generals, and the subtitle was The Cost of Chaos. And, yeah. and that was really the first two years. The book was really about the first two years, or maybe the first two and a half years. So, you know, but I was able to revise this and mm-hmm. we thought that you know, the, the Trump and his generals was like, it wasn't really an accurate account of what was in the re- revised version, which yeah. is substantially updated and revised. So, Do you cover the, let's see, you, you covered the Iran thing in there too as well, yeah. and then pulling another thing. You it, it looks like you you basically talked about Jim Mattis as his general, John Kelly, HR Master, and what they went through. And then do you cover Millie in the updated version of the book? Or? Yeah, I yeah, yeah, because I work at a think tank, New America, which you mentioned in the intro. And one thing, I, I thought it would be an interesting research project to track what retired and active duty three-star and four-star generals officers were saying about Trump. Because mm-hmm. we have a tradition in the United States of retired four-stars, the more senior you are, the more you stay out of politics or try to. And Trump really changed that. And it wasn't the insurrection on the Capitol Hill that really changed it. It was the events on June 1st at the White House, where for the first time since General MacArthur, one of Trump's heroes, cleared a group of men who were camped out when President Hoover was president. Mm -hmm. It was the first time that armed force had been used against protesters outside of the White House. And I think that was really an inflection point. General Milley was in uniform going to this photo op with the it, he he apologized for it very clearly. Three days later, he did a graduation commencement speech on video for National Defense University, and he said, "Look, it was a mistake for me to." And all the kind of chiefs, they can't. It, the active duty chiefs can't directly criticize Trump, but they all released statements saying we defend the Constitution. They made it very clear, and I, I my team and I counted about three hundred statements about Trump by three stars and four stars. The reason we cut it off at three stars and four stars is to get to a three star position or a four star position. Usually, it's pretty, it's quite hard, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of yeah, one stars, and so we kept it at that level. These are the leaders of the U.S. military, either, and there were about three hundred statements. Two hundred fifty of them were, were critical of Trump. And a lot of them came, and what was very interesting, Chris, after the White House incident where he held up the Bible and the protesters had been cleared, was Admiral Mike Mullen came out and criticized Trump by name. Now, Mullen hadn't said anything about Trump at all. He was a former chairman of the Joint Chiefs. John, John Dempsey, another chairman of the Joint Chiefs, had never said anything about Trump publicly. Paul Powell came out. He, he Colin Powell now, of course, just recently died. Colonel Powell came out very strongly against, against Trump and it had made other public statements. But you had a bunch of you know, very senior retired officers criticizing Trump and then also active duty criticizing him obliquely, not by name, but saying, hey, we protect the Constitution. So I, I see the White House event as being the kind of moment when he lost the military. And this is the guy I wrote the book for Trump and his generals because when he came to office, no modern American president had an active duty three-star on his staff, HR McMaster, as a national security advisor, and a, a retired uh, three-star, General Mike Flynn, who was uh, who McMaster succeeded, Mattis, a four-star at defense, John Kelly, a four-star, at, a retired at both, both at Department of Homeland Security and Chief of Staff. So, but the, the military turned against Trump then. And so when the January 6th insurrection thing happens, the General Milley, and I'm just responding again to the question about Milley, released a very unusual public statement. 
he sent a note to the two million members of the armed services, which is the national, you know, the active duty National Guard and Reserve, just saying President Joe Biden is going to be the 46th president of the United States. And we don't condone any of this insurrection. And, and this is a guy who came into office very much besotted by the military. He wanted to have a big military parade in Washington. He went to a military-style boarding school in Vietnam during when he was a teenager. And then, of course, avoided service in the Vietnam War. But he's always been very interested. General Patton, General MacArthur, two of his heroes. And they, he really lost, I think, um, the support of a lot of the senior officers. Do you think that in the last days of, I think, after he lost the election, they installed uh, a couple of his goons uh, to head over the Pentagon. And it almost, the move almost looked, to a lot of people that were watching and reporting it, the move almost looked like he's going to try and seize the government. He's going to pull a coup. Yeah, yeah. You've, been, you've been watching, I think it was H.R. McMaster was his first general. And you watched how corny it was to have him announce it and talk to him on some couch. I think it was at Mar-a-Lago in the Trump Tower. And you could just see that. I don't know, the kid-like adulation of authoritarianism in Donald Trump. I've got my generals or something. There was a comment that he made about that. There was just... Well, he, he definitely referred to them as my generals. And of course, I don't think he... the. I think he misunderstood a lot of what the U.S. military stands for because the U.S. military is not an authoritarian. It's not in the business of supporting authoritarian leaders. And has, you know they swear an oath to the Constitution not to a particular president. And so I think he really misunderstood. I don't have this in my book, but Mark Espo, who was his Secretary of Defense, yeah. uh, who did come out with a book recently, talked about Trump wanting to shoot at protesters. Like, this is somebody who didn't understand the, the ethos of the military is very much opposed to the kinds of things that Trump, some of the things that Trump wanted. And I think he just misunderstood the military. He hadn't been around. He, he had no experience, really, of the military. Going to a military-style boarding school doesn't mean that you understand the ethos of the, the, the U.S. military. And he'd never, he didn't serve in Vietnam. He took five deferments. He is, I don't, there don't seem to be people in his family. It's not like he was coming out of a family that had experience with the military. So I, I think he just misunderstood the military. And they began to draw away from him. And Mark Esper, during that run up to the White House, the demonstrations outside the White House, talked about dominating the battle space, which was a very unfortunate thing on a, on a conference call with American governors. Yeah. But, but he himself, I think Esper, who's a West Point graduate, two day after, shortly after that White House event said, hey, there's no world in which the Insurrection Act can be invoked against these protesters. Or, And I think he, he, like pretty much any other person who served in the military at any level who became uh, part of this administration, put some distance between themselves. And I, I don't think, I think you used the word goons about people that Trump put in at the end. He didn't, he wasn't putting in goons, I don't think. Yeah, I know, I know. I, and Marcus Burr, well, he's a West Point graduate. He, had served, well, yeah, he, he's not, I mean, I'm just saying, he's certainly a normal administration. He never would have become Secretary of Defense. He wasn't Jim Mattis. And then there was also Chris Miller, who's a retired special operations uh, colonel. He was also promoted after Esper was fired by Trump. And in a normal administration, also, he wouldn't have got the job. But Chris Miller certainly served as a special operations uh, Colonel ran National Counterterrorism Center, had a senior job doing counterterrorism in the White House. I, I would just be careful about using the word goons. But what I would say is that in a normal administration, the uh, Secretary of Defense is like Leon Panetta or, yeah. you know, a Bob Gates or somebody who's like a pretty much a really well-known household name or, or has some real gravitas and based on their career, 
And that was not the case at the end of the Trump administration. It was harder and harder for him to find people. And just for me to clarify, when I meant goons, I wasn't referring to Mark Esper because we're friends on LinkedIn and talking about having him on the show. There was, right before January 6th, there was two or three people that they installed that had no business being over at the Pentagon. Yeah. And they were believed the people that interfered with sending the National Guard out to the January 6th thing. Those are the goons that I'm referring to. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember. Some people that would insert it who were Trump loyalists who uh yeah I, I yeah and the question was a lot of the press was saying what are these guys over there doing what are they why would you send these guys in the last few days of your presidency last right. couple weeks of your presidency what are they mucking about what are they among and i think they were one of them was the author of the order that told the national guard to stand down on january 6th or to make it so that the response wouldn't come there well, um even on that, the, there was a good reason why you wouldn't necessarily want... There was a discussion about having the National Guard at the Capitol. And I think there was also a discussion of, like, maybe it wouldn't make sense for the National Guard to be at this event yeah, because of the message it would send. That turned out to be the wrong decision. But you could also see why, like, having armed people around the Capitol might... There might be a reasonable debate about that. Yeah. So you talk in your book about how the Pentagon, with some of the generals, they slow walked his stuff. They they ran a little interference. And of course, he had to deal with the Pentagon. Do you think that really helped keep us from falling to an authoritarian takeover, that that delineation line that we have with the Constitution and, and where our military people do say allegiance to whoever the presidency, the commander in chief, but it is also to our constitution. And I believe that is the be all and end all the constitution part. Yeah, I think the, the military turned out to be a big break on any plans that Trump might have had to yeah. say in office. They just weren't going to go along for the ride. And also the judiciary as well. Yeah. 50 lawsuits were filed by Rudy Giuliani and others who were supporters of Trump, and they all got thrown out. The system worked. Now, will the system work again if Trump's back? It fails if he runs and fails to win. Will he claim fraud? Or if he wins? I, I don't know. I think the system maybe the system did work, but the, the difference is now you have people being voted in as Secretary of State who seem to embrace, and then they have... Secretary of State in, the, in state offices, and they have a role in elections. Yeah. So you could see that the, the system is potentially more amenable to these claims of fraud from a system point yeah. of view. Yeah. It's interesting, and I, I'm glad you document this stuff so that people can really look at it, because everyone, the Trump administration was such a PR machine. Half the time they would do stuff or they would, Obama did something, and they would just write off it. Oh, we made that happen. And they ran such a PR machine, and the truth lies somewhere in between. And certainly Trump was very successful at using Twitter, but I don't think that, I think I'm not confident that, that the PR machine for the Trump administration particularly worked that well. No one believes Sean Spicer when he said the largest inaugural crowd in history. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it was factually not correct. But but I mean, what's so fascinating about the country at large, and I'm zooming out past Trump, is what really matters to people are facts, it's narratives. And so people mm -hmm. of all persuasions are looking for facts that fit their own narratives or, or, or facts, pretend facts that fit their narrative. And as human beings, we're very strongly programmed to we tell ourselves stories all the time which we believe, and, and we find things that fit into it. And unfortunately, that has become more pronounced. 15% of Americans in polling believe the QAnon conspiracy theory that there's a satanic cult running the country, and that number goes up, I think, to 21% of Republicans. So 
personally, I'm not one of those people. And if I just passed Comet Pizza just two days ago. Newsflash, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there isn't a basement in Comet Pizza where groups of pedophile Democrats are plotting to take children. If somebody from North Carolina, I think, came to Washington believing that with a rifle and started shooting at Comet Pizza. And, and so... Now, that's obviously a very extreme version of this, but I think that the issue around truth, three quarters of Republicans in recent polling don't believe that Joe Biden legitimately won the election. This is obviously very corrosive to our body politic. If this becomes just a feature of the way our politics happen, that, that, that's difficult. Yeah, it's uh, and everybody knows John F. Kennedy isn't really running the. I, I saw some, I saw one of the guys at a Trump thing, and and the guys, yeah, John F. Kennedy's running the presidency right now, and John F. Jr. is running the vice presidency. Everybody knows that it's not true. It's FDR who's actually running everything. So I just want to correct that for everybody. And the world is flat. So there, and it's not flat. It's more like a rolling bumpy thing. I don't know what that means. But so Peter, this has been pretty insightful. I'm glad you called it out and and made the assessments and set the record straight so that people can see how dangerous our world would become. I remember watching CNN on Trump's inauguration night or Trump's election night the, the day after. And CNN had two Italian journalists on the show. And they go, you just elected Silvio Berscaloni. Oh. And way to go. You, you elected his twin. And here we are with what you've talked about. We may do the second round of Silvio Berscaloni. <laughs> Yeah, and didn't Berlusconi himself, I think, got a second round. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> um, and no one prosecuted him either. So he had his own uh, Merrick Garland, I guess. He had, uh, he had what we refer to as bunga bunga parties, which I... <laughs> yeah. Uh, but one thing I, I, I think in Trump's defense, I would say is, I thought it was fascinating that George W. Bush gaffe about and that and Trump didn't make this huge unforced error that, that George W. Bush did make in Iraq. I'm not quite sure what that means. Every president, we have a very strong presidency. It's a very, it's an imperial presidency in many ways. And, you know, the commander in chief, there's a reason why, you know, it's important about who we put in, who we vote for. But yeah, let us see. Um, yeah. 75 million Americans voted for Trump. He's very popular still in lots of parts of the country. And, yeah, the Democrats need to... Uh, one one of the easiest things in politics is to say we need better communication. I, I don't think that's... The, I, I think, what do Americans care about? They care about inflation. They care about crime. And if politicians are talking about other... Th well, I, don't, I think they care about the kinds of things that we saw unfold in Texas. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, these, and I, I thought it, I, it's interesting that... Biden has really moved, who I think fundamentally is a centrist Democrat, definitely was not embracing the defund the police move, uh, because I think that, you know, even in Minneapolis, where that movement to some degree began, the Minneapolis, uh, that failed, the defund the police. I think we all know what a, a you know. Let me ask you this, based on your book and your assessment and yeah. writing the book, and of course, going back and reconciling after January 6th, because that's a hell of a seminal moment. I think your book came out in December 2019 on the hardback. Yeah. Um, do you think that if Trump were to win election again, or let, let's say, for instance, the House of Representatives in 2022, the GOP takes the House, appoints him Speaker of the House, they impeach the vice president, president, like they've talked about doing, reinstalls him. Do you think if he gets the presidency again, are we going to be even more in danger than we were as his original presidency? Well, I think that's a loaded question, and I'm going to answer it in a different way. If you do the thought experiment where COVID hadn't happened, I think Trump would have comfortably won. I, I think, think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and, and then this whole the 
all the you know kind of denialism about not he would have won it would have been a kosher victory and i think it was his kind of incompetence one of the when, when i wrote the hardcover what i one of the conclusions i said was like every president since fdr has said something really big happened on their watch that they either rose to the occasion or they didn't and, and you know even you know, bill clinton had a mostly a pretty but I grew up on his watch and he had the embassy attacks and the USS Cole. He responded. George H.W. of course had 9-11. You know, George H.W. had Saddam invading Kuwait. Usually there's a crisis and the presidents are graded on how they respond to the crisis, not just like to what business as usual. And so if you go back to the end of 2019, you know, Trump seemed to have some wins and some losses, and but he wasn't the guy that, you know, failed rather dramatically on the COVID pandemic. And he wasn't the guy who consistently pushes this, you know, terrible lie that we election. And that makes him a very different person. And I think anybody listening to this can draw their own conclusions. One thing that always used to bother me was, who wrote the book Fear? It's one of the Watergate uh, uh, people. Uh, yeah, my, would, would. yeah, my brain's gone out the door. And, and either Fear or one of his recent books... His, I think it was his last one with Trump. Trump would say, you will know me in the second term. And he kept saying that. And that used to just uh, make my skin crawl. And I agree with you. I think Trump would have won. I think Americans care about their, their pocketbook more than everything. That's why people vote for fascism and authoritarianism. The trains run on time. Yeah, well, that's a complicated question. There's a whole set of circumstances why Mussolini did well in Italy and, and why Hitler did well in, in, in Germany. But yeah, they were they came out of the Great Depression, right? So, I mean... Yeah. Uh, front and center of people's concerns at the time, but we're not in the Great Depression right now or anything close. It could be. We're going into a recession, so uh, and well, yeah, is we're nine it. bucks. People yeah. blame the guy, the person who's the, the president for the yeah. economic situation, but for which, of course, easy money from the Fed and COVID itself and supply chain issues in China and the invasion of Russia into Ukraine, all these things are because inflation is happening everywhere. It's not, it'd be one thing if inflation was only happening in the United States, but it's a global phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, so it's hard to say, you know, it, but Biden will get stuck with it. Um, and he knows that. And that's what did Jimmy Carter. And there's no, if I was a betting man, I would say, you know, that right now it's highly unlikely that Biden would win at an election against Trump if it was today. Yeah, I don't think he would win. I don't think he's going to win no matter what it is. And I'm a modern Democrat. The uh, Yeah, and I was thinking very heavily the other day that, Jesus, this is turning into, like, the Jimmy Carter era. And then, I don't know, it's really interesting to me. He's a good president. He does what he's supposed to do. He does the empathy thing. But it's almost like we've become a nation that embraces people like Trump. We're the Kim Kardashian, Jerry Springer sort of nation, where we want white trash politics as opposed to just somebody do the job well. And, and sometimes I wonder if that's going to be our downfall. I don't know. I have always found Neil Postman, who wrote Amusing Ourselves to Death, Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business. Neil Postman wrote this in 1985. He says, our politics, religion, news have been transformed into congenial adjuncts of show business, largely without protest or even much popular notice. The result is that we're a people on the verge of amusing ourselves to death. And I think that... Wow. He wrote that in 85, and I think that gets to what you're saying, which is we are, the politics is fundamentally a pretty boring business of compromise and you know, votes. And, and so people want something more exciting, and certainly Trump delivered that. And I think you're right about Biden. And Biden has been, I think, a competent president in terms of getting COVID relief, 
passed and trying to get the economy in shape, but and trying to get infrastructure passed, which is popular. But but uh, yeah, he doesn't. It hasn't translated. Now, in fact, if you look at Biden's favorable ratings, they never recovered from the Afghan debacle. Yeah, mm. he he dropped. Now, of course, the, re- the reasons now are very different. But it, it, he dropped, I think, to like low forties immediately after that because it seemed projected to like a total feeling of incompetence and and they're not feeling but it seemed very incompetent and 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 he didn't recover from that he hasn't recovered from that so we'll see of course a lot of things can change the next year or two and if i think on ukraine he's done a very good job of doing precisely what trump tried to do try to undermine which is build up the nato alliance confront putin and i think he's done that quite skillfully yeah, it's interesting what you were saying about that gentleman who wrote that in the 80s. I was thinking, I was just looking up here, when was uh, Newt Gingrich a Speaker of the House? And it was in the 90s. He sure nailed it because I think that's when some of our politics went downhill on the, on oh, the, Newt, on the hill. Newt went out of his way to blow up what he saw. Part of this, I think, is about the Cold War, which is there was such agreement between both sides of confronting the Soviet Union that that papered over a lot of our differences. But yeah, I was a very young, relatively young reporter uh, covering. Uh, Capitol Hill for the CNN. We were making a documentary. And back in the day, the Speaker of the House would get like three people at his press conference. And Newt Gingrich got 300 people come to the you know, journalists come to his press conference. And he was a phenomenon. He was planning to really blow up the old system, which was the Tip O'Neill, the Reagan. Mm-hmm. You know, we may disagree with each other, but we're going to work together. And you know, Newt really succeeded in that. And it was an early uh, embracer of Trump and that kind of politics. And that kind of politics is largely defined. See, there's going to be a new book by uh, Dana Milbank coming out in August called The Destructionist, a 25-year crack-up of the Republican Party. Jenny's going to unpack a lot of that. But we know, yeah, and then John McCain contributed to this by embracing, you know, the, the governor, Sarah, Sarah Palin. She was a, wasn't a serious uh, politician. She was a good politician, but she wasn't really a serious person. Yeah, I think new. You trace back a lot of this to, to Newt and the people that he brought in and his view of how to change in Washington. Yeah. It, it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. I'm going to just uh, strap myself in and go for the ride. Anything more you want to tease out on the book, Peter, before we go out? Thank you for having me on the show. I, I think, I, just to return to one of the themes, themes we discussed, I do think that Trump really lost the support of the senior military, which mm-hmm. you know, that is not, that's also something new in this country. I, I, I'm not, a, I don't know enough about American history, but when your own chairman of the Joint Chiefs is publicly taking you to task to, to, your, to the armed forces, I think that is new. And one thing that is we have to be very careful of in this country is there is a reason that the U.S. military so widely has very high approval ratings. Apart from all the obvious things, they're also regarded as non-political. And if you do the thought experiment where, let's say, Kamala Harris is president in you know in, in the next cycle, and there are a bunch of retired four-star and three-star taking her to task publicly, we it's a slippery slope. The more that these senior guys. Uh, and they are mostly guys get involved in politics in one way or another. It, that is a kind of a norm which we need to think about pretty carefully. It's a norm you don't really want to erode. But it began to erode. It's been eroding for a while. Admiral Crow, you may recall, Chris, was the first chairman to endorse, he was retired to endorse Bill Clinton. Hmm. And now it's pretty routine. Every time now you have any candidates running, you have hundreds of retired you know, generals and admirals signing up to one side or the other. 
And maybe that's a reflection of how divided we are as a nation and the kind of increased polarization, because, of course, the military, are, they're also American citizens and they're going to be affected by the politics just as much as anybody else. That's true. But I, if I'm leaving, like the final thought would be it's it's not a great position for the military to be in, to be seen as increasingly politicized, even if they're taking the positions that a lot of people think are correct. That is a slippery slope. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's the one thing one that I was watching was that's really the one thing that separates us from nations that either have the like Myanmar or Egypt where the military steps in and interferes or coups or basically takes out someone they don't feel is doing the job. There's a kind of, I don't know if you call it a thin line, but there's definitely that line of separation with our military. And I think there was concern with, what was it? It was General Mill, uh, Milley or the new general who they were concerned about the QAnon sort of infection in the ranks of the military. Well, Lloyd Austin, who's a secretary of defense, you know, yeah. certainly been concerned about extremism in the ranks. And I think, you know, that's something that they're, you know, are being very, you know, they're being pretty proactive about. The country, you mentioned Myanmar and Egypt, I would say even more, you know, Pakistan is a, is a, is a sort of quasi democratic society in which the military has pretty much a lot of veto power over who, uh, gets in or out and yeah that is not a place you want to be yeah. uh, and, and i don't think i don't think we will be because i think the, the military showed that it had absolutely no interest in going down this path they swear on a constitution not to a person it was very chilling to hear general Milley's. it was recounted by someone say at biden's inauguration we landed the plane and it was he was sweating it up until that moment and then i i believe general Milley had also told the pentagon and people to stand down in case there was a call for some sort of much like what echoed with what they did with nixon when nixon was drunk walking around the White House talking to portraits of Washington and Lincoln. And so I don't know if you touch on that in your book. No, I don't. I, I'm aware of the reporting. I, I don't yeah. know. So. Yeah. Interesting stuff. It's been wonderful to have you on, Peter. Thank you very much for coming on and spending some time with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoy thank your you. Uh, real Memorial Day. There you. you. You too as well. Also, give us your plugs, your .com, so people can find you on the interwebs uh, and get to know you better, please. Uh, PeterBergen.com is my personal uh, website. There you go, guys. Order it up. It comes available on paperback, the updated paperback, tomorrow, May 31st, 2022. If you're watching this five to 10 years from now, people are still watching our stuff from 12 years ago. The Cost of Chaos, the Trump administration and the world, and hopefully people that are watching this 12 years from now, we're still here. <laughs> so we'll put that in the time capsule. Thanks to Peter for being on the show with us. Thanks to my audience for tuning in. Be sure to go to youtube.com for chess Chris Foss. Go to goodreads.com for chess Chris Foss. And all those places those crazy kids are playing. Uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, all those places you can find the show. Thanks for tuning in. Be good to each other. Stay safe. And we'll see you guys next time. Chris, thank you for having me.